Yes, we're talking pet chat. And a big welcome, Daniel Carrington. Welcome to the show. Thank Dr. you. Dr. David Tabret. Lovely to have you both. Good to see you, Charlie. Oh, you too. Oh, you haven't got headphones turned up loud there enough. There we are. That's there better. we go. Too much partying over <laughs> Christmas. Too many loud I, music. I was guffawing around your weather comments. Oh, well... I, I, I'm with you. I'm there too. We're, we're, we're working on those bodies for next <laughs> next summer. Next oh, summer. Next I'll summer. Be ready. I felt I was ready, but okay. You are. Okay, you are. no, that's fine. Look, what are we chatting about today? Um, Dr David Tabret, what are we looking at oh, later on? Oh, look, a very controversial subject that's... Uh, well, to be honest, not that controversial from our side of the fence is um, a recent study from the University of Melbourne about diet and neurological disease. So I thought we'd tackle that one. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. And Danny, what are we chatting about shortly? Uh, look, I've just had a litter of uh, Waimarana puppies. and Congratulations. They've all gone. Thank you very much. You look good yeah, for that. I, I do. <laughs> I, my body's uh, in perfect bounced health back. and fitness now. It's bounced back. <laughs> He's glowing. 11 puppies. It's a lot to carry. Danny, what are we chatting about in just a couple of minutes? Sure. Look, um, I've had a litter of puppies and they've now gone to their new homes and I thought why it's an opportune time to talk about puppy socialisation, owning a puppy, picking up your puppy, what the breeder does and what you as the new owner should do to get your puppy ready for the big world. So that's what I want to talk about today. If you've got a pet problem we've got Dr David Tabret here on standby ready to answer any of your questions but before that now Denny you've just um, given birth to how, how many puppies? <laughs> Eleven. Oh. Eleven Waimarana puppies, yes, oh yes. Oh, my goodness. I know. So, obviously, your dog's done an amazing thing. Eleven, yeah. and it all went smoothly? It did. So, um, look, they've just gone to their new home, so they, they leave us at eight weeks of age. Is that and, hard? Uh, look, after you've had them for eight weeks, and when there's a large litter like eleven, yeah, it's about time. Oh. Time to move on. Time to move That'll on. That'll be worse than having um, a baby. Sometimes you do get attached um, more to to some than, than others and so forth. Um, and sometimes someone might say, oh, can you keep the puppy another week? And therefore you've got that one puppy and mm, you become more attached bond. to it, the bond. And it's... <laughs> I'm hearing <laughs> That's you. what does happen. But there's the things like feeding and cleaning up the poos and socialising, all that kind of stuff that you need to do. So it's a lot of work. It sure. Is. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is, yeah, being on a list with a breeder, getting a, getting your puppy and then what to do. So socialisation starts really from around three or four weeks of age for pups. Okay. Until the three or four week mark, they do spend most of their time in the whelping box with mum and she feeds them. Um, and then around that four week mark, you can start weaning them off and getting them onto, onto dog food. But um, and that's the time they are, they've opened their eyes by then. They're walking around. They're sort of not so wobbly. They want to explore, yeah. have more space. Um, and you take them out on the grass and they play around. You just put a pen around the grass and they're playing around all the time and exploring different things. Once they start getting their teeth, they start chewing on rocks and wow. they start chewing concrete. <laughs> it's a busy time for everybody. <laughs> exactly. But it's important from a breeder's perspective between four to eight weeks when they do leave that they um, have a so certain amount of socialisation with those puppies. So they need to get used to being handled with kids, with other adults. They need to the different smells of outside, inside and people smells. Are the dog smells? So if I've got I've got some of my other adult dogs in the yard carefully under supervision we let them associate with those dogs as well um, also while they're in the house um, up to that that 
uh, mark of when they're drinking mum's milk and so forth up to four weeks of age, getting used to all the house noises, TVs, music, um, vacuum cleaners, people talking, kids screaming. That is really important for socialising for our puppy. So then when they go to their new home environment, their new home, they're actually used to a lot of that kind of stuff and it can make it a bit easier for You're not reinventing the wheel for them. That's right. But then as new parents, new owners, what do they need to do? They need to quickly start developing the the routines, Mm -hmm. the feeding times, when they're going to bed and when they're sleeping. Like puppies sleep throughout the whole day. They really do. They'll play for half an hour, 40 minutes, and then they'll want to have a nap. Bless them. I'm <laughs> the like same. Kids. <laughs> it is just like kids. That, as you said, that routine's crucial to it get is. them into it, and it relaxes them. It is. And sometimes at, at night time, though, sometimes it can be difficult because the puppies, usually the first few nights, puppies used to sleeping with litter mates. All of a sudden, it's sleeping on its own. Mm. You know, so some people are like, oh, I'll well, put it in bed with me and sleep with it. That can also develop some bad habits. Yeah. We don't necessarily want to get into that either, unless you want to keep that up till they're full grown and, and after that. Yes. So they have to be comfortable in their own personal space, and we, we have an area for them to be comfortable in. We're doing toileting. Toileting is really important. They need to go outside and toilet. There's those things to, to think about. Who's going to pick up the poo? The family, okay? Yeah. You'll be surprised, even though it's a puppy, how much they do. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Well, bigger dogs as well, bigger breeder dogs, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and continuing that socialisation. Now, we've got to be careful with that socialisation. And what I'm saying is, is you, when a, you pick up your puppy from your breeder at eight weeks, they've only had one lot of vaccination. So they're not fully covered for mainly the, the three things that can kill your puppy, parvo, distemper and hepatitis. Yes. They have had their C3 possibly or a C5, but it's not fully, uh, I guess, active to cover 100% till they have their second and third vaccination. Mm-hmm. So I'll always recommend to, to my puppy people uh, for the next four weeks till that other vaccination, Keep them in your backyard. Yes, they can meet lots of friends and so forth, but I wouldn't take them to a puppy uh, park. So you can have um, your friends bring their dogs to you, you people that you know and trust. Yeah, and the dog's been vaccinated and so forth. But some of those things like parvo can be spread very easily. So you've just got to be careful and mindful, okay? Um, So, yeah, don't take your dog to a, 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 a doggy park that's under 12 weeks of age. One thing in terms of diseases, uh, and the next thing is... If it's an off-leash park, lots of dogs could come at it. Yeah. It could scare it. Yes. It could really frighten it for the rest of its uh, life. And then it's going to have an issue every time you try to take exactly. it to a park. Okay. That's right. So then when you start your puppy preschool, which I always recommend, you start your puppy preschool, uh, a lot of the preschools say bring them in from you know nine weeks, ten weeks of age, because up to 16 weeks, they're really receptive to training. Okay. Okay. And they really absorb everything very quickly. So... Um, until you start your puppy preschool, and even then, you should do the basics, teach them how to come, go to sit on their bed, and also, um, uh, yeah, with treats, positive reinforcement yep. along those lines. Um, and uh, then when you start puppy preschool, it's educating you, and it's also educating the puppy. And then you continue what you're learning there at the preschool. Yeah, sure. Um, what a preschool is also great for is that interaction with other puppies, continuing that socialisation, other dogs in a safe environment. Unlike a doggy park. Yeah. Because all the puppies are going to be on a leash. They're all the same size. Neutral 
Special territory. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So working along those lines with uh, with that kind of socialisation. So, uh, yeah, I hope wow. that helps people in terms of um, knowing what to expect when you're getting a puppy. But the key for, for these days for our domestic dogs is socialisation because they've got to be part of the human environment. They're not allowed to roam around anymore off-leash or all that kind of stuff apart from a park. And making sure they have, uh, yeah, all those noises, all those other people, other dogs getting used to that because you want to bring up a, a dog that's not going to suffer separation anxiety that's not yeah. going to be scared and you got to do all that i tell people with with my uh who buy my puppies oh they say i want to take two weeks off or three weeks off from work so i can really spend time with the puppy which is wonderful but they also need to know your routine yes you true. do have to go to work at some stage yes. and spend eight hours away and so the sooner they get to used to that at a younger age the better will be later on I was actually a preschool dropout and so was Gizmo. We only went a couple of times and, you know, I, you know, back in the day he used to sit, do a half roll. He never really rolled. He just sort of went to his side and then went, I'm not doing it. But now, now that he's like a veteran, he's 13, oh, forget it. If he wants to go for a walk and sniff the tree next door and I say, Gizmo, come, nah. Yeah. Selective hearing. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll come back when I pee on the tree, thanks. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it's a good idea. Some really good tips, Denny. Yeah. No, it's really good. And, and that's the thing also with smart dogs, um, and there are lots of smart breeds out there, where, yeah, it's like raising a, a two-year-old child because no doesn't necessarily mean no. Yeah. <laughs> or come yes. now doesn't mean come now. Yeah. Yeah, so you've got to uh, accept that and really work with that and keep on training. Rose, hello in Cardiff Heights. You've got a 16-week-old kitten. Yes, and she's got a limp, a new little limp when she walks. Oh, oh poor little thing. So uh, I took her to, to the vet yesterday. It only started on Monday. Mm-hmm. It's on the left, left back leg. Yep. And the vet, said, the vet said yesterday that she couldn't feel any fracture or anything. Yeah. We don't know how or why this happened because... She's an energetic kitten, so I thought, could, could, could she have just jumped off something a bit too high? And yes, yeah, that would be my thought. Mm. But um, anyway, I'm going back in tomorrow because she wants me to. Because, so she gave an injection of Imodic and yep. an anti-inflammatory, and she said, come in and we'll have another look at her tomorrow because the limp is still there, but she's getting around and she's happy and she's cleaning herself, you know, she's... Mm. I'm, I'm hoping it's just a little strain or something. But it's come on very quickly, you said. Like, it was, wasn't there one day and it's yeah. there the next. Okay. Um, yeah. The, one, of the, one of the complicating things that we see with uh, animals of this age, um, probably up until 12 months of age, the younger they are when we get these kind of events, the more concern that we have is that they can actually do damage to the growth plates. So the, to give the uh, real name is called the epiphyseal plate. And uh, that's the area where the, the bone is getting lengthened um, on all ends of the bones, particularly at that age, four, four months, 16 weeks, you're still pretty much all the bones are still growing. So the problem is that if you do get injury and most likely there is a trauma and it can be a very mild trauma initially, but it can have these long lasting effects. And that's why I think your vet's very uh, wise to be suspicious and want to keep a close eye on things because if it doesn't correct itself, if it doesn't come good, we could be facing problems, you know, two to three years down the track associated with altered growth of the bone. And some of those cases end up requiring surgery if 
it's not attended to early. So keep uh, make sure you go back and get that checkup, and hopefully it's nothing too severe. Sometimes an X-ray is useful, but uh, some of these growth plate injuries they they don't even show up on an X-ray, and it's only till about a month, yeah. you know, a month or two later, and you have to get a repeat X-ray done that you can see the effect of it. So. Uh, fingers crossed for your little one. Hopefully it's nothing too severe. Yeah, it sounds awful, but look, good luck with it, Rose. Thank you for the call. We're going to go to Frank now in Paxton. You know, you've got a problem with your older cat and, and the diet. Yeah. Good, good, um, oh, good afternoon, Nick. G'day, Frank. What's going on? Yeah, it's an old, it's an old cat, and um, it got fussy with its food, and now all of the eat is raw mint. It'll eat a bit of dry food, yep. but not much. But it loves the raw mint, and I'm wondering whether I need to supplement it with vitamins and minerals. Mm. Well, you, you're absolutely on the money there. That mince is not a complete diet, and in, no. it can lead to all sorts of problems. So, I guess if we want to be uh, correct about it, if you think about a cat, they're a true carnivore. Their natural habits would be as they would consume a whole uh, mouse, usually, or some, you know, a small mammal. So they actually get muscle they get fat they get bone and everything in their diet in this case if you're just feeding mince we're missing out on a lot of different things now the thing i would probably take a step back here and say why does he not want to eat other food and the two things that jump out at me would be dental disease or kidney disease so what happens is that with uh, dental disease their teeth becoming really sore um, he might tend to stay away from the the dry food, as you said, because he just likes the feel of the soft food. Cats are a bit funny. They're a bit different to dogs. Dogs, you'll often won't discover their dental disease unless you're looking until quite late because they will just eat and eat and eat or they move the food to the other side of their mouth. Cats, as we know, uh, are a little bit more fussy and so they'll tend to give you that signal. But nevertheless, food is a very strong motivator. So they'll try and continue to eat, in this case, the mince. And that would be my first concern. And the second thing is kidney disease. We Probably as a function of an older cat, really, that we do see a higher prevalence of kidney disease because they've been around for a while. They start to lose protein. Um, and the problem is that as he eats protein, uh, because his kidneys aren't hanging on to it, it just makes things worse. So, you know, the increased protein in his diet could be, if he's got kidney disease, could be actually accelerating the problem um, also, raw mince has low calcium and a high phosphorus, and high phosphorus is toxic to the kidneys if you have kidney disease. So there may well be supplements that are needed, but I think the first thing is to find out, you know, what's going on. Because um, both of those things are quite treatable uh, to some extent where you'll actually get him eating in a much better condition. So I'd suggest a, a visit to your vet and see if they can... Um, you know, work out what's what's needed. And you could probably even have a look at his mouth. And if you can see a red line, you can see brown stain on his teeth or teeth that are loose or missing, uh, odds on he's probably got uh, dental disease. He may or may not have kidney disease as well, but worth to get it checked out. Mm. Really good questions there. Thank you, Fred. We, Frank, we appreciate the call. 49216216. We're talking pet chat today and taking your calls. Now, David, what are we looking at? Did you say we're looking at diet? Well, kind of. Okay. Kind of. So the big news in the last week is there, well, last two weeks, is there was a study published uh, that was uh, uh, mainly out of the University of Melbourne. It's a very interesting study. So there's a condition in dogs called acute polyradiculoneuritis, 
Okay. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, okay. And you've spelt it correctly, too, on three, three out of five occasions. Uh, look, it goes by a number of different names. Actually, in the US, it's known as coonhound paralysis because it was seen with dogs that had had exposure to raccoon oh, saliva. Right. But as far as I know, we don't have don't raccoons <laughs> in Australia. And uh, what we've found is that there's a number of factors that can play a role, but it... In essence, it's an immune-mediated disease attacking the motor nerves in the body. Now, the interesting thing and why we're really interested in this is, A, because it's a condition that, you know, we don't know a lot about and so on. It actually looks like a dog... When a dog's affected by it, they look like they've got tick poisoning. Well, um, that's confusing. Mm. So, so it's paralysis. Yeah, it's so they get this paralysis and it can actually affect their back legs, moves to their front legs and can, in often cases, affects their swallowing, in some cases, affects their breathing to the extent that they need to be on a ventilator. So it's a quite a serious condition. And the reason why researchers are um, looking at this in detail is because it's very similar to Guillain-Barre syndrome in people. And there's research in there as to what are the possible causes. So there was an excellent study there was 27 dogs that had this condition and they matched them up with 47 control dogs. So in terms of veterinary studies, it's a reasonable size group. And they found that the dogs that had the condition, um, if they had consumed raw chicken in their diet, there was a 70 times risk increase in the risk of getting polyridiculoneuritis. neuritis. Wow, that's, that's a pretty large yeah, percentage. Yeah, so the dogs, the dogs that didn't have it uh, were this it was their risk was not seventy percent it was seventy times greater if they had um, raw chicken in their diet and we've linked it back to they found an association with a bacteria called Campylobacter now this didn't just come out of the sky this idea yep uh, there's been some research done in people with Gillian Barr that actually there may be a factor or a role for Campylobacter playing some something to do with it there's a lot of genetics involved and there's other trigger factors but certainly it's an area of active research and the, i guess the controversial part is uh you know we've got this paper that links these two things the controversial part is that there's very much uh and danny you'd know this a lot of people come in and they say i want to feed my dog raw food and this and this and this there's a reason we cook food and in a lot of cases it could be for flavor texture digestion yeah but also for bacterial Yes, uh, I didn't even health. know pets could get salmonella poisoning until recently doing right. pet chat. So um, Campylobacter is very common uh, in chicken, raw chicken, and in the dogs that were affected, they found it in all but one dog out of the 27. And the dog that they didn't find it in um, had uh, lived on a property with chickens. So he was kind of like immune to it. Or something. No, no, they no. He he was affected by the disease. Oh, okay. But he wasn't getting fed the raw chicken. Oh, right. Sorry, but he lived right. on a farm but he lived with the with chickens. chickens. Okay. So he's probably may well have picked it up elsewhere. So the question is, you know, does that mean I have to stop feeding my dog raw chicken? Probably. But doesn't mean you have to stop feeding raw food. You can cook it. Um, and we come back to the question about bones and so on. I think the big thing here is just remember that there are risks associated with everything we do mm. and just being aware of it. And interestingly, we've had uh, three cases of um, three patients at the um, 
Animal Referral and Emergency Centre in the last six months with this condition. I was going to ask, how prevalent is this condition? Well, this is the thing. The diagnosis of it is pretty difficult. Mm. Okay. I guess, do you treat it like a tick paralysis sometimes? Do pe- you know, that's what you would think it is. So I'll tell you a story. Back in 2003, I was working in a large hospital in Sydney and there was a specialist neurologist on staff, one of the best in Australia, and she presented, as we went round the cages, she said, this is fluffy and da-da-da-da-da. And mm. he, was, he was treated for tick poisoning, didn't get better. He was treated for snake, didn't get better and got referred here. And he's got uh, acute polyradicular neuritis. And we went to the next one and same stories. Treated for tick, didn't get better. Treated for snake bite, didn't get better. And he's here with this condition. And he'll get, they recover over two weeks if they don't need a ventilator, right? And I said to her, so how do you diagnose it? And she said, well, you treat them for tick and they don't get better and you treat them for snake. Yeah, a process of elimination, and I they guess. Don't get, but, you know, in saying we've seen three cases in the last six months, like we saw 300 tick patients and we saw 25 snake patients. So you treated them for those so, first and the three that didn't get better? Well, yeah. Wow, okay. If we uh, snake bite, we don't. We wouldn't necessarily always treat for that because we've got tests that we can look at. So, David, for for people that may be listening and thinking, oh, I've given Fluffy um, raw chicken mm, um, mm. his or her whole life. Yep. Is it a case of they can be fine eating raw chicken and then all of a sudden not be fine, or if if they have been okay, you so, know, or, you, or we don't know. So there's two two sides of that. Okay. So the study looked at dogs that had the disease and looked how many of those ate raw chicken and it looked at normal dogs and said how many of those ate raw chicken there were dogs normal dogs that ate raw chicken that didn't get the disease right but it increases the risk okay so if you said oh look i've fed fluffy um and he didn't get the disease well that's great but if you own 20, 30 dogs over your lifetime and you do that all the time, probably you're going to see a couple of these dogs get this condition. Wow, okay. Now, what other factors are involved? There, there will be other factors involved. We don't really know. Interestingly, a lot of people have talked about things like um, uh, dogs that are outside, uh, water sources, you know, they get access to water sources, contact with birds, other raw meats, recent vaccination, okay. insecticides, Food scavengers, dogs on rural properties, age of dogs, desexing, none of those things change the risk. Oh. Uh, it is more prevalent in smaller dogs, and it's heaps more prevalent in dogs that eat raw chicken. Doesn't mean every dog that eats raw yes. chicken is going to get it. Really interesting stuff, and no doubt we're mm. going to hear more and more about this. Well, as a, promote, a proponent of raw feeding myself, um, I was aware of that research study that came through. And uh, for consumers, it is getting hard because there's studies like that and there's a lot of people who are doing research themselves with raw feeding and finding the benefits. I mean, uh, recently there was a massive um, long-term trial done by the um, a, a, a laboratory based in Helsinki, Helsinki University, uh, comparing dry dog food, eat dog, dogs who eat dry dog food and dogs who eat raw food. And there was interesting uh, information found along those lines of why the raw is better. Okay. So, you know, it does get confusing. It and does. Then, and then even in the, in the raw food sphere that we're, we're in, there's different grades. Um, I'm very much in terms of raw feeding, but I want to make sure it's human grade raw food. So the chicken that's minced up and all that well, human grade. Well, interestingly, but, in this study... They looked at other studies in the human field and found if you look at the Gillian-Barr syndrome, there is an increased prevalence of 
this bacteria Campylobacter, yeah. when the most common source for it is poultry. So poultry, yeah. looking after your food hygiene is still probably, doesn't matter how you go, yep. still the most important thing. Look, and the other thing is, sorry to just add that, is not always, um, dogs in the wild wouldn't just eat one protein. That's right. People think I'll just continually give chicken to the dog for the rest of its life. I disagree with that. We need variations of protein. So good raw food brands have different proteins. You've got kangaroo, lamb, beef, chicken, so forth. Hello, Anne from Lemon Tree. Welcome to the show. Uh, you've got a question for us? Um, I haven't really got a question. It's just a comment about the topic you were just talking about, Campylobacter yeah. in dogs. Yep. A few years ago, my dog was diagnosed with that. Mm. And he used to be a Delta pet therapy dog. And they picked it up when he had his regular three-monthly check yeah. for that particular program. And they picked it up in um, a blood test. And we put it down to the fact he was eating raw chicken necks. Mm. And I think what happened was we'd leave them out and he wouldn't eat them, so they'd virtually stay out for a while and end up getting probably the salmonella. And um, he was on antibiotics for a few weeks before he was allowed to go back and finish his um, his Delta program. Mm. So uh, I haven't heard of it since then. I think it's interesting the uh, you know that there's screening at those various programs, and it's really important yeah. for therapy dogs that we look out for some of these things. Definitely, because he wasn't really showing any symptoms. It yeah. was just a regular three-monthly check. And um, this is what it was. And at the same time, there was a show on TV called Doc Martin, and one of the characters in the show got the same condition. I bet he was affected. <laughs> Exactly. It wouldn't make good TV if they just said your blood test was positive, but otherwise you're fine. So they would have given him a disease. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I haven't even heard of Campylobacter since. I had it, and now you're talking about it today. And just quickly, Anne, do you still yeah. do the therapy work, the Delta no, therapy? No, um, we did it for five years. We used to go to Maitland. Yeah, good on but, you. Um, Spike's now retired and he just flies around all day and does nothing. Oh, oh good on him. He's earned his rest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good that's old Spike. exactly right. Yeah. He's and 14, so um, oh. that's good for him. Yeah. Well, thank you for the call. It's really interesting. And even, um, Daniel Carrington, you've been having discussions with David off air. And it is such a big topic. And mm. as, a, as a consumer of pet food, it's very confusing because mm. you get told sometimes, you know, look, there's so much research that goes into tin dog food. You should be buying that. Then other times it's like, no, that's not enough. And it, it does get confusing to One, know what we should be feeding our pets. There's a vet in America that I subscribe to, and she said it. I did an interesting video about this kind of stuff and <laughs> she did make it interesting she said we just need to think about it simply um, and it's like if you look at the ingredient list on the back of the food mm -hmm. if there's things you can't pronounce maybe you shouldn't feed yes. your dog <laughs> I think I need to do that policy with myself sometimes <laughs> <laughs> but you know as, as the lady suggested um, when the dog uh, dogs will, if they don't eat their food, go and hide it in the backyard. You go and dig a hole, and who knows what kind of bacteria that would uh, accumulate and over time, and so forth. And uh, it, it can happen. These can, things can happen. And I always say to people, dogs are not cows; they don't graze. If they don't finish eating their food, yep. take it away. Uh, look, don't leave it around. We're guilty of that. And then you think, oh, sh I shouldn't be feeding them this. But then I also think, well, sometimes they eat their own poo. So yeah. Um, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, actually, that that, that was. One of the things that was covered in the study yes. was they looked at, you know, if the dogs were doing that, eating their own feces, was that a risk factor? It wasn't. 
It no. wasn't. No. They, so they can eat their own poo, but don't give them a well. I'm not saying I'm bone. not saying they can do that. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that it didn't seem to be linked with uh, this condition. It's really interesting. Very mm. interesting stuff. And I guess the thing is, if you are uh, feeding a raw diet as opposed to a, a cooked kibble dry food diet, while you were used <coughs> to leaving the dry food in the bowl for the rest of the day, yeah. that's something you shouldn't do with a raw food so diet. So it's a change of behaviour yeah. for yeah. the people. Yes. The other conditions that we see, I mentioned tick and snake, is botulism, and I've seen that in dogs, associated with scavenging, decomposing food. So that's a different bacteria altogether. Okay. And uh, the other one is um, pufferfish toxicity. And mm. we actually see a couple of those mm. every year as well. So um, tetrodotoxin. And all of these syndromes look exactly the same. As I said, the uh, diagnosis is quite difficult for this condition because you've really got to work out that it's not the other things. Yeah, it's, it's like the good doctor in the veterinary world, isn't it, with all these oh, really unusual conditions? Well, it's so, so much fun. As David said with the earlier caller with the cat issue not eating the food, uh, you know, I'd, I'd still recommend a raw food diet, but you really should get those checks done. Like, what if it is the kidneys? Sure. What if it is teeth yeah, decay? All yeah. that kind of stuff. That's very important. Some well-rounded advice there. Mm. Having a quick look at the weather for our sponsor, the Hunter Motor Group Motland for new Honda, Subaru, Volkswagen and Isuzu Utes. Remaining sunny, what you see is what you're going to get for the next few days. Heading for tops of 35 tomorrow, 38 for Friday, so back into the water. It's sort of bather sort of weather, really. Uh, we're talking pet chat. Look, I think we have time for at least one more call. Rachel from Stroud, you're our lucky caller. You've got a question about your cat. Yeah, um, she's been pulling her fur out. Mm, OK. How old's your pretty cat? Oh, she's, um... Uh, let me think. Uh, just over two. Oh, okay, very young. Um, we we see this for a number of different reasons. So I always break these problems up into behavioural because that's a whole big group. And cats will self-mutilate is what we call it, associated with things like stress, anxiety and so on. Um, there could be another cat around the neighbourhood, there could be a dog, there's some reason why we could show some anxiety. So self-mutilation can occur. There is, however, on the other side is medical conditions, things like allergies, and that includes fleas, um, dietary allergies, or exposure to other allergens in the environment. So things like pollens and, uh, you know, leaves, grasses, those sort of things can also trigger reactions in cats um is there a particular part of a body that she attacks well she started on her tail and yep. like her back end and she just kept going off her back and back down her back legs and okay i would number one thing is i would be absolutely making sure my flea controls up to date not just for her but for any other animals in the environment so dogs, cats, rabbits uh, and ferrets can all transport fleas. And actually, interestingly, the flea that affects the dog is Tenocephalides felis. There is actually a canis, but it's the most common one. The flea that we all talk about is actually a cat flea. So um, cats are very interesting with fleas because if they're not allergic, you often don't see the problem. And a lot of the time we see allergies in dogs and then we find out later on that actually there's a cat in the house and the owner says, oh, no, he doesn't, you know, scratch himself. And then finally we realise that's why we're not getting control of it. So cats with allergies and certainly that part of the body that we're attacking, fleas and flea control is going to be your number one thing to do. 
uh, and end of summer is a very common time for this. Thank you for the call, Rachel. Look, we've only got a little bit left, but before we go really quickly, can Cushion's disease be hereditary? Uh, no, not like family to family, but within breeds, yes, we do see hyperadrenocorticism or Cushing's disease, yes. Okay, thank you very much. Daniel Carrington, David Tabret, thank you both for coming in as always. It's a great show. Very interesting. And we'll uh, do Pet Chat same time again next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.